Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm really excited to be bringing you Elisa Wood, who's head of private markets for KKR. Of course, KKR is one of the real pioneers and powerhouses globally in investing in private markets. We explore with Elisa the type of premium that clients can extract uh, for the trade-off of illiquidity in private markets, as well as some of the trends she sees coming in those areas and, and the benefits of looking at private markets within people's portfolio. Please remember, this podcast isn't designed, nor is it advice of any form to anyone. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also read all offered documents and, and accept their own advice or take advice where appropriate. Please remember to keep your feedback coming through to me. Uh, it's david.clark at codacapital.com. We'd love to get your feedback on potential future guests or subjects you'd like uh, addressed. So feel free to email me as and when you can. Please enjoy the podcast. I know I did. Elisa Wood, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks so much, David, for having me today. No problem. This is the first podcast uh, I'm actually on holiday, or as, as you would say in the US, I'm on vacation with a good <laughs> buddy of mine who wanted to do a swim over in Hawaii for his 50th. So I'm recording out of uh, the closet, the wardrobe in one of the rooms, but I hope the audio is good. But thank you for joining us. Uh, Elisa, could you please perhaps kick off and just give our listeners a bit of an understanding as to who you are? No, of, of course, ha happy to do that. And um, I think you're sitting in a much better location, even if you're in a wardrobe uh, sitting in Hawaii than, than me sitting here in, in New York. But um, I'm Elisa Wood. I'm a partner at KKR. I've been at the firm um, just about 20 years now. Prior to that, I was with Deutsche Bank um, in their private equity group. I've spent really the majority of my career KKR helping us build a lot of our new businesses um, and figure out where we want to go um, in terms of strategy and products uh, and then help helping go um, actually uh, effectuate that. So today I look after our private markets and real assets uh, strategies business for the firm globally. Um, and I'm also looking after uh, uh, the democratized private equity business as well for the firm. Okay. And, and uh, what, what's your background? What led you to this? So I, I actually did not intend to go into finance uh, many, many moons ago. Um, I thought I was actually going to go into politics and, and try to change the world a bit. Um, I was one of those folks, though, where a couple years into university realized I was graduating with a lot of student loan debt. And the only way I was gonna be able to pay it off was if I figured out a pretty creative uh, profession to do that. So I went into my career services uh, team at Columbia, uh, at Columbia University, and I said to them, so if I wanna pay this off in a certain number of years, what profession do I need to go in? And they said to me, investment banking. So I, I wish I had a, a more creative answer to, to that question, but I, I tried it out. Um, and it was funny, this is pre-internet, right? So I, I went into, I went into the library at Columbia and I had no idea 
what private equity was. Um, and I started finding different books and one of the books was about KKR and I was trying to read up on private equity. So I, I went um, into private equity. It's private equity back then was part of the investment banks, um, which isn't the case regulatory wise anymore. And I realized that private equity is actually really interesting. And, and I could do a lot of what I thought I was going to be going into politics to go do um, actually in finance. So it, it kind of um, was a meeting, a meeting of the minds in the middle. And that's how, that's how I got into what, what, what I do today. Well, terrific. I think, uh, you know, obviously, uh, for myself being, a you know, an industry professional, um, knowing all about KKR um, and, and, you know, held in a very high esteem globally in this area. But I think for many of our listeners um, who have expertise in other areas, it'd probably be worthwhile if you maybe gave an, an overview of uh, who KKR is and, and, and what it does. So KKR is truly a, about a half a trillion dollar asset manager. That's who we are. Um, we invest in many, many um, asset classes. Um, we started out in private equity. It's probably what we're best known for. Um, but we also invest in credit, in real assets, um, infrastructure, real estate, growth equity. Um, we invest up and down the capital structure. We invest globally, so around the world. Um, and as I said before, we invest in um, a lot of different sub-asset classes. But fundamentally, what we try to be at the end of the day is a partner of choice. And we try to be a partner of choice with the investments we make, with the assets we buy, with the companies we invest in and, and, and we partner with, as well as the investors who invest in us. So while it sounds like we have a very complicated business, it's, it's actually quite a simple philosophy we live by in everything we do. And, and what would great admirers of the business from the outside say about the business in a complimentary way, do you think? I think they would say a couple different things, David. I think one thing that they would say is that we are true um, problem solvers, that what we try to do is, is figure out what the creative solution is to whatever it is we're seeing and, and try to really drive value and create value fundamentally to all of the parties that we work with. Um, I think we would also, I think someone would also say about us that regardless of whether it was 1976 when we were founded or today, 2000, you know, in, in the middle of the 2000s, that we, we really are delivering value to our investors at the end of the day. We're, we're delivering very, very strong performance regardless of the market cycle, um, regardless of what the world outside looks like. And I think we're really trying to do good by doing well and do well by doing good. And, and I think the fact of how we drive value and how we deliver returns um, is really one of our biggest differentiators. It's, it's not just the what, it's the how. Mm -hmm. and, and drilling into that how you touched on being founded in 76, maybe could you touch on the history of the firm and how it's come about and what some of the milestones have been? Sure, sure. So um, 1976, unfortunately or unfortunately, actually looks a lot more like today than um, I think any of us probably would have expected. Um, if you look at the current environment and inflation and, and some of the other things that are going on with the world right now. But back in 1976, we fundamentally were private equity investors. That's who we were. Right. We started out um, but with three founders, um, Henry Kravis, George Roberts, Jerry Kohlberg. Um, coming out of Bear Stearns, 
wanting to continue to do what they did, which is they created this concept of bootstrap investing or private equity as we know it today, buyouts. But they wanted to do it in a place where it could be collaborative, where people could partner together. It wasn't eat what you kill. It was much more of a family type of environment, right? Um, and when, when you think about it, it goes back to what I just said before, it keeps coming back to the how, right? Uh, the what they, they knew how to do. And over the course of many decades, we continued to do that, right? We built a business, we did it globally. Um, we all really share in everything we do. We believe that connecting those dots globally around the firm makes us better fundamental investors. But what fundamentally happened is if you think about the evolution of KKR, is we had very narrow pools of capital. Right, so a fund, call it. We had a pool of capital that only allowed us to do certain things and only allowed us to invest in, in opportunities that would achieve a certain type of return ban. And what we realized was, and this is over a few decades, um, that there are a lot of other opportunities that maybe didn't fit that narrow investment criteria or that narrow strategy band or return band that we could actually still employ our same strategy um, and overlay that how into other asset classes, into other geographies, into other parts of the world. And that's how we started to grow. What we started to do was, is we started to look, and this is in the 90s and in the early 2000s, right around when I started at KKR, we started looking at all the opportunities we were passing up that didn't fit this narrow little band of, of the pool of capital we had allocated for it. And we said, you know what, these investments, while they don't fit this mandate, they're still really interesting and really good investments on a risk return profile. So why don't we lean in, try to create some new opportunities to raise capital with these different um, with this different overlay, with this different investment strategy and, and risk return targets. And let's go build some of those businesses. And that's what we did. So that's how we built out our credit business. That's how we built out our infrastructure business. That's how we built out real estate and growth equity, et cetera, right? We go around the world. And I think what's been so interesting is we've taken that same playbook. It keeps coming back to being a solutions provider, being a problem solver, um, being a partner of choice and really going in and building relationships with families, with boards of directors, with management teams, um, with large corporates and trying to figure out ways that we can do business together, but also do business in a smarter, better way together. And that's really what we do around the world. Now, Lisa, you talked a little bit about there starting off in the leverage buyout in the private equity world. I think many, from my experience, Australians specifically, um, tend to think about private equity as more of venture capital and startup funding. And I think it's probably pretty different for investors in the US who have had much more exposure to late stage private equity larger. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit firstly about private equity and that back, background in leverage buyout, but then also some of the other verticals you're involved in, in terms of energy, infrastructure, real estate, and credit, please? Absolutely. So what I think is very interesting is, is exactly what you just said. People use a lot of the same words and mean, mean very different things by it, right? So when you think about private equity, for us, 
private equity means not venture style, you know, what I would call a bit of a science experiment, right? Is this company going to work? Is it actually going to be profitable? Um, you know, more of a, a, a betting mentality, if you want to call it that. Um, sure. What private equity for us means is investing in good companies we can make better in established, proven, developed businesses that we either can glo take global, we can take local champions and, and, and grow them, um, whether regionally or globally. We could take non-core subsidiaries of large corporates where maybe they don't have the focus and the attention that they need because of the bigger corporate overlay and make them stars in their own right where we can take family-owned businesses and help with generational ownership transition. Um, all of those are things that we try to do, and that's what we mean by private equity, right? So it's buying that good business that we can use um, our operational leverage, our value creation, which honestly, at the end of the day, really is the KKR secret sauce. It's what we do once we buy an investment that I truly believe makes us very differentiated. Um, and, and that's how we've really approached private equity at the end of the day. And we've done, we did that in 1976 and we do that sitting here today. And these are all unlisted assets, private assets. These are typically unlisted assets. Um, sometimes we take companies private. So sometimes we'll go buy public assets and then, and then take those and take those, um, private or public assets. And we take those private. We, you know, I think from, from our standpoint, um, taking a company public, it's often an exit opportunity as well, right? We use the public markets as a financing source, as, mm -hmm. as a way to create, um, you know, interesting capital structures in our businesses sometimes and allow for future growth as well. So to, to us, it's a bit full circle, but yes, typically they are private, David. Can, can I ask you to talk a little bit about private markets versus public markets and how you think they fit into clients' portfolios. We have a lot of clients where they've been very, very successful at building wealth. They've had a liquidity event. Um, and it's interesting because often they've built that wealth through a private company. There's often an asset that's been part of, you know, the factory or the warehouse, and they might've bought one or two. So they understand. And, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that they really understand private businesses and private assets and, and private markets through their own experience. But then often when somebody comes to them and says, look, we think you should be investing a little bit differently to this traditional 30% listed government bonds and 70% public equity, which where it's valued every day and it's mark to mark and it's going to go up and down like a yo-yo, which may or not may or may not be rational. But then they say, well, hold on, there's no liquidity here. And we're sort of saying, well, maybe you don't need liquidity. You've actually built a lot of wealth and understand what it means to have these businesses that are illiquid. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about private markets versus public markets? Absolutely. And I think what's interesting is on the private market side, you know, private markets many years ago when I started in this business, it was actually called private equity investing and, and investing in private markets, whether it was real assets or private credit or any of the, any of the sub-asset classes. Private, private investing was often called alternatives. 
And I mm -hmm. think that is so telling to the philosophy of a few decades ago, which was it was something that is different. It was something that was seen an alternative to public market investing, but public market investing was the crux of an asset allocation, was the crux of a portfolio, right? Because the business model of the advisors relied right. on it. Exactly, exactly. Today, that's no longer the case. Like what is, what's very interesting is, you know, how 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, private investing, private equity alternatives used to be, I don't know, a two to 3% piece of someone's asset allocation. Mm -hmm. Today, it could be 20, 30% of an asset allocation, right? So it's no longer alternatives. It's more, it's more mainstream today. And I think that actually goes to your question, right? Which is, you know, pub, investing in the public markets, there will always be a need for investing in the public markets, for sure. But what we have seen, whether it's liquid credit, whether it's, you know, public equities, we're seeing over the course of a long period of time, somewhat of a compression of return, right? And what's very interesting is folks are looking toward private equity, private investing, whether it's private credit or private equity, private real estate, et cetera, infrastructure, whatnot, as the way to make up that return differential. And this is where right? I'm so, heading. I'd love to know your view on what you think the <laughs> premium is for this right. private market space. And, and, and David, you know, I think where you're going to is the liquidity of it, right? You know, you, you can't trade in and That's out right. of it, right? So you've, you've got to get paid for that illiquidity. Now, what is the right basis for, um, what is the right amount of return um, to trade hands in terms of what you're giving up in terms of liquidity for additional return, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an asset class where, you know, maybe it's 400, maybe it's 500, maybe it's 700 basis points, you know, depending on who the investor is and depending on who the manager is, meaning, you know, folks like us, you can have different answers for that. Because I, I think you can't look at returns in a vacuum. I think you mm -hmm. have to look at them on a risk continuum, right? So one of the things that I always think of is how risky is the, how, how much risk is associated with the unit of return that whatever the investment is, is driving. So all returns are not created equal, right? So if someone said to me, you know, I'm investing in a downside private protected, uh, you know, downside protected structure in a private form, and that can get you, I'm, I'm making up numbers for a second, you know, a 10% mm -hmm. uh, return, you know, a 10% IRR, and someone else is sitting in there saying, well, I can get you a 25% return investing in venture capital, those are very different risk profiles, right? So I don't think you can compare them. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the risk appetite um, of the underlying investor at the end of the day. So one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at is um, in, in the private equity space, I'll use private equity generically, um, as I think we, we often do. Um, it's one of those things where you have to be able to achieve a certain premium above the public markets to pay for your illiquidity, but you also have to have a, a fundamental rate of return as well, right? And, and be generating something that's meaningful there. And I think one of the things that we've seen is in markets of dislocation, 
um, if you invest with the right managers, they can actually even outperform general performance. Um, and that's one of the things that we've really seen cycle after cycle after cycle is that the perf one thing that I think we've seen is there's pattern recognition, right? The drive, the economic drivers, the macroeconomic drivers may all be a little different regardless of the cycle you're in, but the pattern recognition is still there. And that's why I think this is an asset class we're investing with managers who are safe pairs of hands and have seen this before and done this before actually probably matters more than, you know, random stock pickers. But, um, but I, I think what's important is you, you want to invest with people who can really drive that outperformance regardless of the market cycle. And this is also an asset class where your top quartile managers, and I think this is very different than public markets. I, I truly do. And there's a lot of data that backs this up. Investing in a top quartile manager in private equity and invest, investing in like an average, a median manager in private equity, that could actually be over a thousand point basis point dispersion of return. Mm -hmm. There's no other asset class that I've seen where a top performing manager and just like buying kind of the benchmark, so to speak, can be over a thousand basis points of return differential, right? That's very different. So what does that tell you? What that tells me at least is this is an asset class, unlike the public side, which ma it matters more who the who the investor is rather than being in the asset class itself. So I think that's a great great point. But what 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 in your view is the driver of that? Are we talking about information disparity in the public markets? You know, if everyone's sitting there looking at Apple, sure. there's a lot of information. They're all got the same information. But if you're hunting in a different patch where there's hardly any coverage. A lot, not a lot of people know about it. Not a lot of people are willing to go in there. You know, what's driving that disparity in mm -hmm. return? So I think it fundamentally comes down to probably one thing. In the private markets sector, um, we control our own destiny to a big degree in terms of what are the things we are doing to make the company better. This isn't a, we're picking a stock price, when to invest, when not to. We are actually controlling the company. We're actually working with the management team, with the founders of the business, with the people who are driving the, and are part of the team driving the day-to-day decision-making as to what to do with the fundamental business, how to operate it more efficiently, um, where to grow, where not to grow, how to think about headcount and human capital, how to think about um, ownership schedules and how to make everybody an owner so you're driving better performance within the businesses themselves. That is the ultimate, that is the beauty of private equity, right? You're controlling your own destiny by actually controlling the business at a very granular and bottom line type of level that as a public equity investor, you can have whatever disparity of returns you, you may have or you may want, but you're never going to be able to have that type of level of control within the business. Um, at the end of the day. And, and I think fundamentally that's the key, you know, to us, David, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you lived in a world where you can buy low and, and create some type of opportunity on the buy. And listen, today we can still be smart and drive some of, some of that value on the buy. But I think you have to assume that in the private markets, whenever we're making an investment, we as an asset class are going to pay a fair price, right? Mm -hmm. There's 
there is definitely a different playing field, a different leveling of information, right? So you're going to, as an investor, and you're trying to buy a business, you're going to pay some type of market clearing price. And the market is going to determine what that price is, whether it's someone's shareholders, whether it's someone's um, board of directors in a family-owned business, whatever it may be. So to buy on you know, the cheap, so to speak, doesn't really exist in this marketplace anymore. And the differentiation comes down to what are you doing within the business to drive those incremental returns? And in order to do that, this isn't about cutting costs. This is about investing in a business and making it a better, a better company that when from when we bought it to when we sell it. And that's increasing EBITDA, that's increasing the profitability of the business that's that's making sure you actually have a workforce that likes working in your company and is willing to do well and gets behind that. So I think that's that's where we you could actually align and when I used this comment earlier, you know, it really comes down to doing good by doing well and doing well by doing good and, and I think it really comes down to what you're doing within the business. Can you perhaps give us an example of where it works or, or where it has worked and it works well, maybe across a couple of different types of businesses, whether that be infrastructure or real estate, for example, what are the type sure. of things that you're looking for, how you've added value? Um, give maybe an example of some transactions you've done in those areas. Absolutely. And, and we can, we can give a number of them. Um, you know, if you want to go into more of the real asset space, one of the things we've been investing um, a lot behind is energy transition and in, in infrastructure. And this is going in and buying assets that have, you know, in a lot of cases, in almost all cases, irreplaceable footprints, right? Whether in some cases it may be wind assets in some cases, it may be solar assets in some, I mean, you go down, down the list of all the different things we've been um, investing behind. But a lot of what it comes down to is how do we then, even in infrastructure, where you have irreplaceable assets with long dated contracted, you know, uh, contracts associated with them that really lock in the long-term yield, right? So when you think about it in terms of a risk return standpoint, back to the prior um, conversation we were having around the risk piece of it, you would argue these are much less risky types of returns, right? Um, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to how do you operate these assets better? How do you invest in them to make them more reliable? How do you grow them? So if you have a footprint today in country X, how do you then go and, and actually continue to grow some of that same footprint within that region or maybe in a neighboring region? And those are a lot of the things that we've been spending time on um, in really trying to take some of the big thematics around the world that we're seeing. I think energy transition, especially today with everything that's going on in the geopolitical landscape, is an area that we're really, really leaning into. Um, you know, and another area when you think about housing in real estate, um, mm -hmm. one of the things that we've spent a lot of time thinking about is, you know, maybe student housing. How, how do we think about student housing? How do we go buy assets, um, help maintain them? Or multifamily is another example. Help maintain those assets, create assets in local communities where there, there may not be um, you know, good options for those types of, of folks, whether it be students or, or families who would need to be, um, you know, would want to be living in some of those areas. And how do we invest behind that? 
So I think what's really important is we've taken this ownership model, we've taken this operational value creation model, and we've actually overlaid that across all of the asset classes that we're investing in. It's not just a play, it's not just a, a private equity playbook. Now, Alicia, you touched on real assets such as infrastructure and and also residential property. Um, how are you thinking about you know something like property where you've had um, you know cap rates compress so much? You know, as interest rates, you've had these huge tailwinds for the last thirty years of interest rates coming down from eighteen nineteen to zero, and now we're seeing that unwind. Um, how, how are you thinking about? the valuation of those assets now that that's unwinding. So I, I think what's, well, what's interesting is we're putting, we're putting more capital to work today than probably ever before. So we're investing in, you know, I think an interesting part in, in the cycle where, you know, you can sit here and say, especially if you think about some, you know, in the residential space, in the rental community, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at where interest rates are today, it's pretty hard for people to actually be buying homes. Right. This is one of the first times that we've seen um, in recent, even in medium term history, where that's really the case. Right. So it's it's this flooding of extending um, periods of time where you can actually buy a home because of where interest rates uh, interest rates are today. So that's that's part one. So I think from a you know a market demand perspective, it's clearly there to support the investments that we're seeing. Um, in terms of the 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 valuation piece of it, um, I do think we have long dated capital, right? So unlike this goes back to the private nature of what we do, um, and this is this is the beauty of what we do as well, you're not looking for the day-to-day -day trade, right? Mm -hmm. So interest rates may be going up today, but if you actually look at the back end of the curve, we think things actually become, they don't become necessarily totally unhinged. We actually believe they normalize in several years. So if you're typically holding an investment for more than a handful of years, um, you have the ability to buy really good assets that you could make whatever changes you need to make, invest in them, and then be able to hold them because a big part of the strategy is that yield component, right? It's that free cash flow piece of it. Um, in the real assets, in, in the more of the infrastructure space, you know, I would argue, and also in real estate, I actually think real assets are a really important hedge in someone's portfolio to the current inflation situation. I, I feel like we've been saying that for a really long time here at KKR, um, mm -hmm. and now you're starting to see the importance of having a balanced portfolio and making sure real assets is a, a, an actual good piece of it. One of the things that I think we've been spending a lot of our time doing is making sure our investors, you know, think about that and think about how do they create some inflation protection in their own portfolios. And it's it's not it's not just real assets, right? It could also be buying certain, you know, asset-backed securities in, in the credit space where you can have very similar um, types of portfolio construction and have the same type of benefit there. Elisa, how do you think about the revaluation? You know, one of the big right right at this juncture at the moment in markets is how private assets are being revalued, or in some cases not. You know, particularly in the venture space, we've seen um, you know as 
as bond rates have increased dramatically this calendar year, we've seen a revaluation of particularly growth oriented technology or unprofitable growth really revalue. And, you know, we, we've seen a lot of discussion amongst the, the finance community about how they're being revalued, if that's appropriate or not, when you've got public markets revaluing some of these assets down 70%. How do you think about the revaluation within your portfolios at KKR? Well, I think the most interesting thing for us is the revaluation in the market is coming at a time where, you know, what, what do we have? $150 billion to invest today, KKR, in terms of dry powder. So mm -hmm. this is coming in a moment where we're more buyers than sellers. We're not for sellers, right? So we're sitting here actually probably salivating over some of the interesting investment opportunities out there that we have the dry powder to go lean into. And in a lot of cases, in, in, in these points of dislocation, what we tend to do many, many quarters leading into it, you start to feel at any point in time, there could be maybe some market moves or some type of dislocation coming down. I don't think anyone necessarily calls it perfectly as what the driver winds up being at the end of the day. But we're always looking at investment saying, okay, we really like this business at X, but if it all of a sudden trades off at 50% or 70% to use your to use your number, we, we may like it a heck of a lot more or we may not. But we may like it a lot more, right? So it's one of those things where we're constantly looking um, at the key themes around the world. And while valuation very much is important, and, and don't get me wrong, it very much is, um, we're very disciplined investors in terms of the values we're willing to pay. This is one of those times where there is a lot of market uncertainty, but I think there are a lot of themes that we can be investing behind, whether it's energy transition, whether it's um, this deglobalization effect of some of what we're seeing around the world, that sure. it's more important than ever to be putting capital behind some, some of these themes. Now, we believe you walk, you don't run. Um, and that's something that's very important. We think there's something to be said with regard to annualized deployment and not leaning in too much to one, uh, one vintage year. We think that's very, very important. But that is one thing that we're seeing today. Now, within our own portfolio, I, th I think that that was really where the question was. Um, you know, I think we, this goes back to, we are long-term investors, right? And we're not, we're investing in the fundamental business where we think this business can withstand different market cycles, different tests of time, um, because they're fundamental things that they're providing to consumers or to the economy or whatnot. So, mm -hmm regardless of what the world may look like on the outside, um, we, you know, we have businesses that are in the healthcare space, people still get sick, right? That doesn't change. Um, you know, we still have businesses where we're providing consumers things that they need and they're not going to be able to find elsewhere, right? You know, we, we own a, a consumer business where we're providing margarine, right? We're providing plant-based, um, you know, spreads and things of that nature, regardless of what, you know, inflation is doing, what the world looks like, people are still buying that because they're putting it on their toast. So mm -hmm. I think that is the, the fundamental part of what it is that we're doing. We're long-term investors. We invest in the fundamental um, drivers of a business that hopefully should withstand many, many tests of time. 
and we have long dated capital that we could ride those those medium and nearer term um, you know ups and downs in the global marketplace. Well, terrifically. So that's been uh, fantastic. And I think a lot of our listeners will take a, a lot out of that. I will give you the the last say, if you'd like, before we wrap up. And I, I thank you and we, we'll let you get on with your day. Um, is there anything else you would like to add that you think the listeners may benefit from when they're thinking about private markets before um, we wrap things up? No, I, 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 the one thing I would say, David, is the fact that I think private markets really needs to be in, in, in folks' portfolios. I think there is um, a return, um, there's a return that it will provide that you're not going to get elsewhere in the market. But who you invest with is almost as much as important as as the fact that you are investing. And I really do think it's an imperative around the world, regardless of what country you're in, what part of the world you sit in, that if you are investing in this space, I think you can you can demand that the way that invest investors are are driving investments and driving returns is being done in a way that is that's good for the world, right? I think this goes back to it doesn't have to be a one-way trade, right? Um, the doing good by doing well and doing well by doing good. So maybe with that, um, we can end on that. Terrific. I think that's a great spot. Elisa, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.